Hello, and welcome to SearchCast, a podcast hosted by Isaacson Miller. My name is Rhett Sosby, and I am a people and culture specialist here at the firm and a producer of this podcast. Today, we have Erica Miller, a partner and leader of the pre-K through 12 education and education improvement practice here at Isaacson Miller, and Byron Garrett, CEO of Equal Opportunity Schools and a recent Isaacson Miller placement. Prior to leading Equal Opportunity Schools, Byron served as CEO of the National Family Engagement Alliance, Director of Educational Leadership and Policy at Microsoft, and CEO of the National Parent Teacher Association. We were originally planning to record this in person altogether, but unfortunately, due to everything going on right now with COVID-19, we are connected and recording this virtually. So thank you both for your time and flexibility and for making this medium work. And without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Erica. So Byron, hello. First of all, how are you doing? How is your family and how is the team at Equal Opportunity Schools doing in this very challenging time? Well, greetings to you and thanks for asking. We are doing well. My family's doing great. Uh, the staff and our entire organization is doing well also. We've been remote actually since the beginning of March. Uh, so we've settled into now, I believe, eight weeks of what is the new normal or some variation, but everyone is doing well. Thank you. We're glad to hear it. Byron, I want to start out by talking about Equal Opportunity Schools. Uh, this, that's where you and I had the, the pleasure to meet. Tell us, what drew you to Equal Opportunity Schools? What was so compelling about this opportunity? Well, several things. Uh, the most significant piece, however, was the mission, uh, the sole focus on, or singular focus on ensuring that students of color, specifically black and brown students and low-income students, have access to coursework of rigor and academic instruction that will prepare them for uh, secondary, post-secondary roles in life. And so that was of personal interest to me uh, because I've navigated that in my own life as a student uh, and then also as an uncle and helping raise my two nephews. And then professionally, I know the value of getting a quality education and making sure that students are identified and placed. And many populations are often overlooked. So the combination of those two, both on the personal and professional front, really intrigued me enough to make the relocation from the East Coast to Seattle, where we're headquartered. Mm-hmm. And how have you found your first few, first several months at, at Equal Opportunity Schools? Has anything surprised you? You know, with everything that's going on with the pandemic, that has been one adjustment that you just don't plan for. Um, I think the commitment to the mission by staff, you know, you expect folks in the nonprofit space to have a very altruistic view to wanting to engage and support the populations. But the staff here are uniquely committed to the mission, unlike any I've seen in other organizations that I've worked in or been a part of. And so that has been a pleasant surprise. Not that I didn't expect them to be committed, but when I say they're all in, uh, we talk about race and equity in the context of school districts, but we also live that in terms of how we operate internally and ensuring that every single action or decision that is made, that we're looking at it through a race and equity lens. And so that level of commitment has been a pleasant surprise, quite honestly. And what are your aspirations for Equal Opportunity Schools, Byron? You know, several things. Uh, At this particular stage, uh, when I came on board, 70% of our revenue came directly from school districts via contracts, and about 30% of our funding came from philanthropic circles. And I would love to see a a more equitable balance of that, perhaps 50-50. 
so that we have greater support. Uh, fortunately, most grants that we have pursued have been funded, but we need to expand the universe of those that we serve. And so we've been looking at other ways to secure additional funding to reach broader audiences. Uh, that's one piece, so funding. And then the second is, as we think about these different audiences we're trying to reach geographically, there are some locations, some large districts, some rural areas where we don't have quite the representation or engagement we would like. And so we are launching a robust strategy to ensure that we can reach some of those larger markets, uh, primarily because they contain the demographics that we're most concerned about serving. Uh, so those two are, are the leading objectives that I focus on. And then the third, uh, really increasing our overall visibility and positioning equal opportunity schools as a national thought leader in race and equity in the context of education. And that will happen over time, but we're making great strides in that direction so far. Thank you. Byron, a little bit earlier, you referenced family, and I want to shift a little bit and, and talk about uh, your personal inspirations. Why did you choose education as your life's work? Well, growing up in North Carolina, um, post-segregation, but not too far, and being the descendant of a sharecropper in the state, my, my grandfather on my dad's side, so my paternal grandfather, uh, it has been shown to all of us throughout my family that education is your ticket. It is the passport uh, to go from one section in life to the next. It is the ability to traverse communities, demographics, and socioeconomic stereotypes. And so I learned early on, my mom is a social service uh, employee and my dad is a United Methodist pastor, and they have always had a commitment and ethic around how do we ensure that folks have the best quality access to the things they need and education being first and foremost. But I also saw at that same time frame that other folks were not availing themselves or perhaps the opportunities were simply not there for them uh, to pursue a great education. And so I decided early on in my life, around high school, then going into college, that it would probably be the single most greatest endeavor I could undertake was to ensure that we provide great opportunities for young folks across the country and around the world to get access to the high quality education they need uh, so that they can change the trajectory of not only their life, but that of their entire family. And thus, I focused the majority of my career in the education space, specifically K-12, not saying I don't care about post-secondary, I do very much. But I know if you don't get it right in K-12, it limits your ability and opportunity to go beyond that. So it sounds as if your, your parents were certainly an inspiration for the work that you currently do. Tell us about some of the other leaders and mentors who have had the most significant impact on your career, Byron. <laughs> You know, I get that question often, Erica, and yes, my parents, I always tell folks you may never meet Franklin and Yvonne Garrett, but uh, they are two of my guiding principles as it relates to how I'm inspired and motivated to do the work I do. Uh, I also shared that I have two nephews that I, I helped raise uh, from elementary school through high school and then on to college. And being directly engaged in their lives also inspired me to realize that the same opportunities I was creating for Brandon and Dwayne, my nephews, I wanted to ensure that other young folks had that same experience, whether or not they had a caring adult that was advocating on their behalf. So my nephews, too, serve as an influence. But external to the immediate family, I've been fortunate and blessed to have several great mentors in life. Uh, one of them is now a colleague at Equal Opportunity Schools, but I've known her since I was a high school student, uh, Evelyn Taylor, 
um, who showed me the way of the value of engaging in nonprofit. How can you be a person of color and not sacrifice your personal ideals, but you can influence the land and the work that you're engaged in? Uh, I was also fortunate to encounter the late Dr. Maya Angelou as a college student uh, when she was teaching at Wake Forest University and I was at High Point University in undergrad. And ever since that time frame, uh, just encountering her presence, one, it was significant in and of itself, but fortunately to get some mentorship and guidance from her just on how you navigate the world and how do you define your voice. And which led me to then write books and engage in speaking. Uh, so I was really fortunate. And also, I would say uh, Stephen Graham was another great mentor uh, who I met through a program called Junior Achievement as a high school student. And we still keep in touch uh, to this very day. So I've been blessed to count a number of folks as formal mentors. But I would also tell you that the students that I served when I was a K school principal were an inspiration to me because they defied the odds and stereotypes every single day. And so I know firsthand the power of young people when they have a caring, committed adult that is believing in their potential and gives them the resources to rise to the expectation. And they will do their very level best to do that. And so I have a variety of influences, but those are the ones that stick out the most often. That's terrific. Byron, at Earlier in the conversation, we talked a little bit about some of the roles that you've held in your career prior to coming to Equal Opportunity Schools. How have those previous professional roles prepared you to lead Equal Opportunity Schools? You know, every I tell folks often you are the culmination of all of your life's experiences, good, bad, and indifferent. And so every position that I've held, you know, right now, Equal Opportunity Schools focuses on high schools across the country. I was a K-8 school principal, and while I was not in a high school as an administrator or an educator, I certainly understand the pathway, the trajectory, what is required to prepare a student to matriculate uh, from middle and elementary school on to high school. And so that certainly prepared me in a way uh, to have firsthand working knowledge of what it's like to be in a district or in a system, whether it's charter or traditional public uh, that has prepared me in a very significant way in real time to understand what our clients and partners need. But I also had a role at one point in time as an ed advisor to the governor of Arizona, where I was in, immersed in statewide policy and trying to understand how do you balance Republican ideas and Democratic ideas, knowing at the end of the day, you just need to do what's in the best interest of all kids because they don't pick a political persuasion when they're in third grade or eighth grade. They just know that they need resources and tools. And so I learned even in that particular role, how do you reach a compromise? How do you identify the things that you can work on collectively? While you may have disagreements in areas where you cannot reach agreement, there are a host of other things we can pull together and wrap our minds around to make great progress on behalf of young people. And even in my role at PTA with the governance structure and so many layers from a local PTA to a county, to a state, to the national and varying committees and boards and commissions, uh, you learn the value of human relations. And what I mean by that is how do you really connect with people in an authentic way uh, to compel them to act? And I call it being able to conspire on behalf of children to do good. I believe there are too many systems and people oftentimes that conspire and leave our most valued asset, our children, by the wayside. Uh, but we need to be highly intentional around conspiring to do good on behalf of kids every single day and every action that we take because they are our future. 
And so all of those roles combined really prepared me for this opportunity where we engage with philanthropy and corporations and school districts and state education agencies. It is the totality almost of my life's work wrapped up in this one role of being able to traverse those different sectors in society and engage fluently, but also compel people to want to continue to support and do things, whether that's staff or a funder or a district leader, to do amazing work on behalf of young people. So it's been a tremendous opportunity to get to this stage in life and know that I really have had a series of experiences that have prepared me to not only just succeed, but also to thrive in the space. And I'm fortunate and thankful for that. Indeed, Byron, when you look at your career, one of the things that stands out is that you've worked in so many different arenas. Uh, Not many people have worked in the variety of arenas that you have. You've worked in the nonprofit sector, corporate sector, in government. Are Are those sectors as different as people think? You know, I chuckle because, yes, they are um, in in good ways and bad ways. Right. And so you learn in federal government that uh, rightly or wrongly, my perspective was, is this naive person coming from a state role to federal government? And Byron tackles Washington, D.C. was kind of my thought. And you think (laughs) that while everything is going to move at such a hyper speed because it's the government and you have all of these resources and it's the exact opposite because, You have to have a systematic and bureaucratic approach that benefits all. And there are a whole host of contingencies that you've got to think through. Um, So government operates at a very different cadence than I would even say nonprofit and corporate. It's kind of at its own drum, the resources that are structured, how best do you get those to the folks that need them the most? And then how do you reach compromise and what things are you going to trade off? That's one piece. But then on the corporate side, I really learned about metrics and accountability uh, in a different way, uh, because while, you know, a nonprofit thinks about a grant and you got the funding and you have 12 months or 24 months or 36 months and you have deliverables built in uh, and those are incredibly tangible and helpful uh, in the corporate world, you're thinking about dollars and cents, profit and bottom line. That doesn't mean you're doing it at the expense of being successful and engaging and supporting folks, uh, because that is a piece of it. But ultimately, a corporation is in business to provide a service or a good to also make money. And so your metrics and the specificity, I can recall being on discussions uh, with our education sales team at Microsoft, where literally we had a convening every Friday of the leaders in the organization having conversations about where are we not this six month window or this month, but where are we this week towards meeting this goal? Because that rolls into our quarterly report and update. And so those sectors are incredibly different. And I was interested in seeing if my skill set was transferable. Can you work in government and do incredibly well? And can you go in corporate and do well? Can you work in nonprofit? Because I have always believed that leadership is transferable. But until you actually have the opportunity and the moment arises, you can think that. But until you get into practice, you don't know if that really holds true or not. And fortunately, I've been able to learn uh, the good, bad and the ugly um, because there are challenges that come with it as well. If you're super innovative, then you've got to think through what role is best, 
what type of function. If you're someone who doesn't want to manage and interact with a lot of folks, then there are these titles in corporate that you use, like individual contributor, but you don't hear those as much in government or nonprofit. And so you think through what are the best roles that fit your personality, your style and how you work. But yes, each of those sectors are fundamentally different and for a reason because of how they're structured and ultimately what their primary objective is at the end of the day. And they are uniquely different without question. And, you know, Byron, emerging leaders frequently want to know what are the skills, qualities, and experiences that I should have as a leader uh, to prepare myself for the CEO role? What do you think are the most important skills, qualities, and experiences to acquire? Well, several things. I mean, one, in a CEO role, Part of your function is people and culture, so the whole notion of understanding human relations. And I don't mean in the technical sense, do you have a SHRM certificate, uh, but do you understand how to engage with people in a way that gets them to act and perform and produce? Even in the midst of this crisis that we're currently facing, uh, it is still incumbent upon me and my role to encourage folks to still deliver, even though they're facing personal challenges because the world and the way within which they work is drastically different. So I would say first and foremost, having a fundamental understanding of how you engage with folks. And so we call it human relations. My mother joked because it's my undergrad degree. She would say, do you mean the art of manipulation? I was like, (laughs) you can call it that. That's not really what it is. It's really how do you work effectively with people and understand their varying perspectives and using that information in a way that drives and supports the organization. Uh, But I would also say you have to have a keen financial sense. Uh, Even again, in this particular moment, I came into an organization that was doing incredibly well. We have uh, decent reserves and we're steadily improving upon that and great funding partners. But having an acute understanding, you don't have to be a CPA or have a CMA, but you definitely need to understand how to balance the budget. How do you forecast? How do you project? How do you identify new revenue options? And I would say that's critical. Uh, A third skill set I think that is super important is your ability uh, to relate to folks and specifically from an interpersonal communication perspective, both inside the organization, but also external. It's one thing to have a vision and can enroll and engage people in that or can craft a beautiful PowerPoint. It's another thing to officially invite people into that process that they then take ownership to carry the baton to move the work down the road based upon an idea, excuse me, or a conversation that you've had. And so I found that interpersonal communications becomes incredibly important because much of this work that we do is around relationship building. And even in a CEO role, whether you're in corporate nonprofit or you're in senior executive service within the government, much of your work beyond process is around can you compel and engage folks in a way that they act Uh, to deliver the results and outcomes in those respective sectors. And your ability to communicate that uh, becomes super important. Uh, The last skill set, if I were to identify one, is just the whole notion of resiliency, that knowing that everything is not going to be perfect, everything is not going to be right, but you have to have the ability to bounce back in real time because people are counting and looking to you continuously for guidance, direction. They're looking to see how you pivot, how you shift, If you're phased by something that occurred, if you're stunned by something that is said, it becomes really important for you to gauge then how people see and perceive how you act. So those would be the three or four that I would identify that are key skill sets that are necessary uh, as you move throughout life aspiring to be in a CEO position. 
Thank you, Byron. As you talk about developing skill sets uh, for success in the future, it, it takes me back to equal opportunity schools and the, the mission of the organization. I want to ask you, how, how is equal opportunity schools making a difference in young people's lives? There are a lot of education-related organizations uh, certainly um, out there uh, that seek to improve the lives of young people. But how have you seen equal opportunity schools make a difference in the life of, of a young person? Well, you know, we make a difference in a variety of ways. Uh, uh, the most significant is we literally help school systems and districts and educators identify students who are otherwise overlooked and help get them in the right classes to change their academic future for where they not only will traverse throughout high school, um, but ultimately where they could end up in college in terms of major school choice and just the fact that they're now academically prepared uh, to do that. It didn't mean that they lacked the skill set prior to or that they lacked the ability. It meant that they were overlooked in some cases intentionally, in other cases unintentionally. And so we work with systems and districts to do that on a compelling basis through our partnership directors and our partnership managers that work hand in hand with schools. Uh, that's one way that we directly benefit students and their families in helping understand and break down the process uh, to get them engaged. The second is we have a very significant tool package or data analytics, I should say, to be a little more formal, where we produce a student insight card. We do a nationwide survey every year of students at the schools that we're serving. Uh, we serve pretty much a million students uh, over our time frame. We've been 10 years old now, celebrating our 10-year anniversary. Uh, but throughout that survey, we're able to produce and provide insights to educators about their students that they otherwise would not capture, in most cases because they haven't taken the time or the student does not feel the need uh, to share that level of detail in a face-to-face -face conversation, but they'll offer it on a survey um, with only their student identification number attached. And so from that, we're then able to say, this is Byron Garrett's profile. Normally you would know that Byron is in 10th grade. He's African-American. Uh, these are his parents' names if they were provided. And this is, these were his courses that he's taken up till now. But rarely do we ask the student, what is your interest? What do you think your skill set is? Are you even familiar with this particular coursework? And so on the insight card, we actually display information that we've captured from the student that educators oftentimes are surprised to say, I did not know that John had an interest in, in science. I, I didn't know that either because John didn't feel comfortable sharing that in a public way, or he, John may not have been directly asked, or the person that asked him, the way they asked, John may have chosen not to respond in a way that was helpful in that educator seeing John as an individual worthy of being in these types of courses that would help change and alter his future, knowing full well that none of that on the survey had anything to do with John's ability because the ability in and of itself did not change. We've literally seen students with 1.8 or 2.3 or 2.4 GPA. And once we help identify who their trusted adults are, meaning those folks that they call upon and they get engaged in the process and you see that student make a radical shift because now they're in courses that meet their appetite and interest. Uh, they don't feel as if they're being uh, shifted or shaded to the side in some way, and they end up thriving in those courses. And I even know from my personal experience, 
had my mom and dad not advocated for me to be in those courses, I would have been that overlooked student. And in some cases, I was for a period of time. And both of my brothers definitely uh, were as they were matriculating through the system. And so in a very real cutting edge way, we're able to do that, not only on behalf of the student, but also for the educator. And one finer point, we had a superintendent not long ago doing a presentation to our board. And he pointed out and said, I know you all focus on high academic courses of rigor, like AP and IB, he said, but you need to know that the impact that this program has had has not just been on a single student, but the entire culture for our schools has drastically shifted because we see students now that we have not seen before. It didn't mean the student was never there because they were enrolled in the school and in the district, but they never showed up the way that one would expect to end up on the report to say John should be in this AP course or this IB program to really help prepare them for a better future. And so those are some of the ways that we have direct impact on students in a very significant and compelling way. Thank you, Byron. You, you're making me think about uh, a question that often is raised when we talk about education, and that is the role of the school. Um, what should be the role of the school in developing a young person? Uh, we often think about academics when we think about school, but the ability for a child to learn effectively has more to do with, has a lot to do with non-academic factors. Are we asking too much of our schools these days? You know, that's hard to say, are we asking too much? Um, I think in this day and age, like in this particular pandemic where you see in Los Angeles, you know, initially 40% of their students, they hadn't even heard from uh, those that were in high school in terms of a way to engage. And so the folks that have heard and connected with students are those that had a broader relationship beyond and saw it as it's not just my job to stand in front of you to teach and educate but it is partly my job to have a relationship. And while I'm not the social worker or the counselor, I cannot ignore the realities that are staring me dead in the face in these particular communities. And so it becomes incumbent upon uh, educators and administrators to figure out how do you extend your role and yourself in a way that connects with the student and or their family uh, so that there is a level of comfort and engagement, uh, which is not typically taught in a teacher preparation program, uh, I always t- I always told my staff as a school administrator, you cannot teach who you do not know. And my school was located in downtown Phoenix. And, and I had a staff member ask me and say, well, what do you mean by that? I know the student. I'm looking at their file. I said, you're looking at a, a series of data points and I can look at an employee file and it tells me things. But I'm hopeful that you're not the same person this year that you were five years ago. If I'm looking at the employee file, I'm hoping growth has taken place. I'm hoping you've had a different set of experiences. And so I don't want anyone to summarize a VOA student. It's almost like racial profiling to some degree. I'm basing it on this limited set of data, knowing that the human experience is so much more than a set of facts and figures. And so it is, unfortunately, more difficult in this day and age for educators to do their job and do it well in a compelling way. But it's also necessary if you want to be effective, especially when you get to the high school level, You have got to figure out a way to connect with students in a real, authentic way. 
not so that they just respect you, but so that they value the actual educational experience. Because educators also have to compete with all of these negative messages that bombard students on TikTok and Instagram and social media every single day. We're trying to help them ferret and make better decisions. And they can only do that with an education and the information so that they can understand what is real and what is reality TV. And the two of those seem similar, but they are very much not the same. And education still has that role to help prepare young people to be able to do that in real time. You know, Byron, as you're talking, you're making me think about equity. And uh, equity is a word that we hear a great deal when we talk about education. What does that word mean to you when you think about education? You know, it means folks have access to the tools, resources, and materials that they need that are going to benefit them. And so oftentimes, you know, there's an image or a graphic that circulates that shows the students who are standing on the box looking over the field trying to view into a game and you give every single student the same box, uh, but you don't account for their respective heights, weights or sizes. And so if you are the shortest person and you get the same box as the tallest person, while, yes, you're you have greater height now you still may not be able to see over the fence line because we gave everyone the exact same thing. Equity to means I am looking at each individual student or person and I'm giving them specifically what they need to support them in their respective journey. Uh, I have two nephews. I mentioned Brandon and Dwayne and their approach to schooling was very different. And I kept thinking, well, I gave them both the same set of school supplies, even though they are two years apart, excuse me, academically. And I've got them in the right classes. And I didn't really give account initially when they moved in with me that Brandon functions this way and these are the things that he needs and Dwayne functions this way and these are different things that he needs. And I had to pay very close attention to realize that all things are not equal. But initially my thought was, well, they gave me the school list. I got you what you needed. So you should be ready to go. And it's much more than that. It's looking beyond that to figure out what specifically does Brandon need separate and apart from Dwayne. And some of those may be the exact same things. And some of them based upon their styles could be very different. And so equity to me means providing those resources and tools that are customized based upon that particular student and their experience in life and being able to account for that in a way uh, that's going to help them move forward and not actually hold them back or be a disadvantage for them. But how do I turn that deficit into an asset or into an opportunity? And so thinking about organizational leadership three terms that we hear a lot uh, these days uh, in thinking about how to strengthen our organizations are diversity, equity, and inclusion. So as a leader of, uh, of a nonprofit organization, how do you think about those three concepts as you lead equal opportunity schools? Hmm. Um, you know, I think in this day and age, as as complex as society has become, and you think about terms like race and equity, and you think about diversity and inclusion, and folks often, I was at a conference in Atlanta back in the fall of 2019, and folks said, oh my God, it's so great that there's an organization that focuses on this. This is the new thing. And I'm like, this is not a new thing. The issues that we address or that we're dealing with actually are not new. 
Uh, for some people, they may be new and how they're captured, uh, they may seem new. But the reality is the disparities that exist uh, with people of color and low income students are not new in this society. Uh, even if you talk about students from an ability or disability perspective, uh, those are not new. How we address them and deal with them may be different or they may get highlighted in different ways at different times. And so even corporations, you know, now have most of them have, have had an EEO statement for several decades now without question. But I always tell folks it's not around the policy necessarily that you've crafted. That's great. I'm now concerned more so about the actions. You know, James James Baldwin uttered these words or penned these words that I hold true uh, to this day. I shared them at our symposium uh, when we were in Atlanta earlier this year in 2020. And he said, I cannot believe what you say because I see what you do. And so when you think about the concepts of uh, race, equity, diversity, inclusion, all of those types of terms that we want to say are buzzwords or, or, or this is a new variation of that, the reality is we need to continue to focus and press folks to ensure that they have policies and guidance in place uh, that are reflective of a broader society and the true commitment. But beyond the policy, we need to encourage folks to ensure that in practice, word and deed, uh, that they're steadily focused on building a better environment and taking to account uh, the, the wide variety of folks that engage in the system, and specifically in the context of K-12 education with students, it becomes even more important because we're now, you know, districts are required to segment data. You have to slice it and dice it and let's really disaggregate and figure out which population is most affected and the least affected. And again, it's not new. Teachers knew which students were not doing well, but now they're required by law to ensure that they are disaggregating it and creating a plan for that. And so in the context of education, when you think about diversity and inclusion, it kind of has a different ring and feel in terms of what you're trying to do in practice to support that student versus in a work environment or I'm trying to create and build a system uh, that approaches employees and treats them fairly and takes into account their previous experiences and backgrounds. In education, we're doing the same thing, but we're also helping build the framework and lens for how they will view the world. And students in this day and age see and are exposed to things at such an earlier age that many of us as adults can't even grapple with as of yet. And so I think if you look at those terminologies or classifications, it becomes incumbent upon us to not only look at the policy or guidance, but also to look at the practice. Thank you, Byron. We started this conversation by uh, noting that we are in an extraordinary moment right now with a global pandemic. Uh, and we look at schools attempting to educate students um, with varying levels of challenge and success in, in doing that effectively in this moment. When we get on the other side of this pandemic, what is it that you hope we learn from this experience? You know what? And we will get on the other side. And I appreciate you phrasing it that way because we will get get through this. There's no question about it. Uh, that's the, the beauty of the human spirit is that we triumph often in the face of adversity and chaos. <clears throat> it's my hope that we understand that the value of human connection, while for a period of time we may have thought that it rested within social media and digital platforms, if there is one thing I've learned in this particular space of solitude, 
is that I value human connection more. So people keep saying, what's the first trip you're going to take or where are you going to go? And I'm like, the people that I love and care about the most, I just need to see them face to face because getting on a Zoom call or a WebEx is great. Uh, but being able to see and touch my parents or my nephew, or I have a great nephew that's since been born uh, in the midst of this, that I need to see and touch. And so it's my hope that people understand and renew their sense of commitment to each other and to self. Uh, that's the first and foremost. And then the second thing I would say is that it forces us, like we've learned in education, but all of our systems, to continually be innovative and disruptive and not disruptive in a negative way, but disruptive in the sense that we're trying to think five or six steps ahead of what's going to be necessary or required. Um, so even for our staff, as we transition to work remote, many of them said, I don't know if we can do that. And I'm like, but we already have 25, 30 percent of our staff that work remote. They do this every day. We have to too make the adjustment from a home office corporate perspective. And so it, it allowed folks, I think, to take a step back to really figure out what do I value? How do I prioritize my time? Do I really need to take this trip? Am I, is it necessary that I go in this particular manner? Or are there other ways that I can also accomplish my work and be more productive? And so I think on the work side, from a professional standpoint, that's been the other piece that's been a, a huge aha, not so much for me, because I've been working remote for probably 10 or 12 years at least. Uh, but it's been to see people recognize that an office is just a space. Uh, but I can conduct my work in my business unless I'm a first responder that requires me to be in a specific location at a set point in time. Most other functions uh, are not necessarily based on proximity, <clears throat> but they're based on skill set and ability. And so as long as you have the tools to do that, you're in, you're in better position. So it's a different it's a different era. Folks have continued to say, well, what's going to be the new normal? And I'm like, that is yet to be unknown. And it's odd because, Erica, I was did a keynote um, two years ago now uh, for a TED Talk. And part of my message was around preparing kids for a world that does not exist. And part of what I talked about is if the traditional school system went away tomorrow, what would we do? And could we still educate children? Well, we see that happening right now in real time. And part of my talk was encouraging folks to think beyond the traditional manner and method of education, because education in and of itself doesn't cease how and where people learn uh, is a question, but it is not the only question. And it has now required every district across this country to think differently and rethink how they engage and empower students in order to ensure that learning takes place. The same way corporations have had to say, how do we adjust our environments from a work perspective to ensure that we're still productive, taking into account all of the things that are taking place. So those are some of the things I hope folks learn from this experience, but the value of the human connection, understanding that your life does not revolve around that device that's in your hand, even though you think it does. Um, even though more people have posted TikTok videos and been on Twitter <laughs> and Instagram, I think people also realize, wow, I can actually still sit down and have a family dinner time because we're in the same space at the same time. It becomes incumbent upon us to carve out the time to make those moments happen. You know, Byron, you're also reminding us that uh, this moment is giving us more time to reflect in some ways. A lot of us are taking more walks than we've ever taken before. Um, and that gives us time to pause and to think. Uh, as you are reflecting on your life and on your career, uh, if you could go back in time, what piece of advice would you give your younger self just starting out in his career? <laughs> um, 
I would say pace yourself uh, because my mother told me as a child, she would always say, you're so eager to work. I'm always trying to either have a lawn business or a lemonade stand, like from a very early age, right? I even had a merger and acquisition at the age of five <laughs> where I took over two other lemonade stands in the neighborhood um, because I saw the opportunity and the students were like, we just want to sell products and talk to people. I'm like, well, great. Here's your quarter and I'll take the other 50 cents, right? But she told me, she said, when you start working, you're going to work every day for the rest of your life until you retire. And that didn't mean anything to me then as a student, because you're like, I want to buy this bike or I want a skateboard or I want roller skates. And it all shifted and changed every single year or whatever the latest fad was. But as I became an adult and bills start coming in and you acquire things and you realize, wow, I have now got to do all of these things uh, to pay for this. Right. And so that message of her saying you know, you, you are going to work every day for the rest of your life. I've adjusted that to realize that I, that you should pace yourself throughout. And it's not about this being a sprint of getting to the finish line. It's about literally it being a marathon that is continuous for a sustained period of time. Uh, the other thing I would tell myself uh, is that success does not happen overnight, but it happens over time. And what I mean by that, it is incumbent upon us to realize that you don't wake up tomorrow and you've mastered every single thing. But instead, over a series of events, experiences, opportunities, work environments, volunteer roles, you amass skills and talents that prepare you for the ultimate position to be more effective than you would have been the day before, the week before, the year before. So that notion that success does not happen overnight, it happens over time. And then the last thing I would tell myself, I authored this book called There is Greatness on the Inside and has this simple mantra that if the mind can conceive it, and the heart can believe it, then the hands can achieve it because it all begins in the mind. Uh, I would remind myself and tell myself that that holds true at every single stage of your life, that you have to be able to conceive the idea of what you want in this world. You've got to believe it in your heart, and then you've got to commit your hands uh, to deliver on those expectations. And people know you not only by the company you keep, but also by the results you deliver. And so the totality of those things are things that I would tell my younger self, and hopefully I would be better, even better positioned than what I am now. But I should tell you, as a final thought, I would not change a single experience because when you do shoulda, coulda, woulda, you have no guarantee of what the outcome would be because you change one single factor. But that would be certainly advice that I would heed uh, during my younger years as I was beginning as a professional. Thank you, Byron. That is certainly excellent advice to end with. I want to thank you also for speaking with us today. We very much enjoyed the conversation and we wish you well. Oh, thank uh, you so much. I appreciate it. Yes. With that, I'm going to turn it back to Rhett. Rhett? Yeah, thank you both again so much for that enlightening conversation. And um, thank you to the listener for tuning in. We invite you to visit imsearch.com for current happenings in our pre-K through 12 education and education improvement practice. Be sure to tune in for future podcasts and follow Isaacson Miller on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Isaacson Miller. Isaacson Miller's podcast content provides general information only and does not constitute recruiting guidance or advice. No representations or warranties are made with respect to the accuracy or completeness of this content. All liability from the use or misuse of Isaacson Miller's content is hereby expressly disclaimed. 
The content contained in our podcasts should be used only at your own risk. Thank you.